Amen. Well, I learned something this week about the Civil War that I didn't know uh, before this week. Nearly two years after the uh, Civil War started, the United States Congress passed the Enrollment Act of 1863 as a way of providing fresh manpower for the Union Army. This is a precursor to the draft. This required every male citizen between the ages of 20 and 45 to enroll in the army. Now, this law was not received well by pacifists and by those in the anti-draft movement. And so two policies were later added to the original Enrollment Act. They were the policies of commutation and the policies of substitution. Now, the policy of commutation allowed for a drafted citizen to pay $300 to opt out of service. This would be the equivalent today of about five dollars or $6,000. And so famous Americans such as Grover Cleveland go on to be president. John D. Rockefeller took advantage of this provision in effect buying their way out of service. This policy, however, created a lot of resentment and led directly to the slogan, maybe you've heard it, the Civil War was a rich man's war but a poor man's fight. But it was the policy of substitution that might have had even a more devastating effect. This policy allowed for a draft-eligible man to not join the army if he could provide a replacement in someone that was otherwise exempted from the draft. Now, famously, Abraham Lincoln, I did not know this. He was, in fact, too old for the draft. In fact, he was the president, so he would have been exempt from the draft anyway. But he wanted to encourage other ineligibles like himself to voluntarily hire a substitute. And so President Lincoln paid a 19-year-old young man $500 to enlist in his place. Now, despite its really good intentions, this policy created some serious problems as the troops that were furnished by the substitution often ended up being too young or too old, as old as 60 years of age or as young sometimes as 13 or 14 years old. Uh, Oftentimes, those that uh, uh, joined as substitutes uh, were in poor health. Many of them were actually alcoholics, and uh, some of them, a large group of them, were even non-citizens who didn't share in the ideals they were fighting for. In fact, many of these substitutes became known as jumpers, where they would uh, collect their compensation, uh, they would join the army, then they would desert their unit before they ever fought, and then they would go right back and find somebody else to pay them, uh, to compensate them, and they would start all over again. Uh, Those that were in the training in the the boot camps, uh, the drill sergeants said that they would see the same people over and over and over as they would continue uh, to come through, uh, although they would never see the front lines. And so practically speaking, this policy never worked in the way that it was intended. And eventually, this practice of substitution was abolished because they just couldn't find suitable replacements. In other words, the perfect substitute never existed. I'm going to ask you to turn this morning with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we continue in our study, uh, the study of the Apostle Paul's letter to that church in the Greek city of Corinth. You might be asking yourself, well, what in the world does the Civil War have anything to do with Jesus and the church at Corinth? Well, over and over in Scripture, the Bible repeatedly teaches us that Jesus was born to be our substitute, and that's what we're going to look at today. But today, when you hear this uh, statement, I want to challenge you to throw out any notion that you've ever had that there's no such thing as a perfect substitute. In fact, Paul's not only going to remind us that Jesus came to be our ultimate substitute to stand in our place He's also going to tell us that there's a uh, high amount of responsibility. There's a a fair amount of uh, responsibility that comes from Jesus being our substitute. 
And so let's pick up where we left off last week in chapter 5. We're going to pick up reading in verse 11, down through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, there is a technique in storytelling that is called reverse chronology. And authors of books and producers of television and uh, TV and movies will use reverse uh, chronology where they will reveal the plot at the beginning, uh, the ending first, and then work their way backwards. Just this week, I was watching a couple episodes on, um, on Netflix that employed this methodology. Uh, Seinfeld famously had this episode that started at the end and then worked all the way forward. Now, I'm no Jerry Seinfeld, uh, but I want to use reverse chronology this morning to understand the impact of this last verse. Because I think when we understand this last verse, that the rest of the verses will have so much more deeper meaning to us. And so let's do something a little different today. I want to look back and read together, out loud together, the last two sentences of uh, this passage. And so I put them on the screen. Let's go ahead and say that together. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, working backwards in the text this morning, I'm going to start at this verse and work back uh, to verse 11 a little later. And so the very first thing that I want you to see, I want you to understand is this message of reconciliation. That might be the um, chapter heading. If you have a Bible that has chapter headings in it, it probably says the message or the ministry of reconciliation. We could really phrase this first principle in the form of a question. Paul is really asking, have you been reconciled to God? It's exactly the challenge that we just read right there. Be reconciled to God. Now, typically when we think of reconciliation, we think of two people, they're not getting along and they need to be reconciled to each other. Now, it is true that Paul, uh, that there was tension between Paul and some of the leaders of this church, but Paul recognized before they could ever be reconciled to each other that they first had to be reconciled to God. 
We've taught this over and over and over that uh, because of our um, rebellion against God, we are seen as enemies of God and we need to be reconciled to him. To borrow language from scripture, uh, we need to stop being enemies of God, James chapter four. We need to become friends of God, John chapter 15. And this happens when we become reconciled. The basic meaning of the word reconcile in the original language is to change thoroughly. And here it's referring to our relationship with God. It, it changes completely. In fact, notice the first words of verse 21, for our sake. You see, God doesn't need reconciled to us. We need reconciled to him. And here's the problem. We can't get there on our own. But that's the beauty of the gospel, that God doesn't need it, we can't get it, but God doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own, to clean up our own mess. That's what he does in verse 21. It says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Let's pause right here for just a few minutes. Jesus never sinned. Not one time, not ever, 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 Jesus never, ever sinned. But God made Jesus to be sin. Even though he never, ever sinned, God made Jesus to be regarded, to be treated as if he had sinned. Uh, even though he had never sinned, that on, in that moment on the cross, that the sins of the whole world, it was if, as if they were all heaped upon him. If you were to study this passage in seminary, this would fall under the doctrine of the category, the doctrine of imputation. Now, last week, somebody at, uh, at the Mason campus says, I love it that you don't ever use big words and you keep everything so simple. And so my apologies to you this morning if that's you, um, because imputation is really a big word and it's a big concept, but I think it's pretty easy to understand if we break it down. Uh, there are some easy ways to understand this, this word imputation or to impute is a word that's borrowed from uh, a banking. It's a banking term to impute from one account to another, to credit something that's in my account and to credit it now to your account. So my daughter, my youngest is in college and she, whether she uses this word or not, she understands this concept when she says, dad, can you transfer or impute some of that money from your account into my account, and she says, use that magic little app that you have on your phone. I know you can do it. That's a true story. Now, there are several aspects to imputation. First, it started with Adam's sin, and it's been imputed to all of us in the form of death. We all die because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and that death sentence was passed along to every single living creature. And when you hear that, that sounds a little unfair. And not only a little unfair, that sounds a lot unfair, that his death sentence was passed down to me. But the next part of it's not fair either, but it's a little more uh, tolerable. In fact, uh, I'm in love with this aspect of imputation, that um, Jesus died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, my sins were imputed to him. So my sins were transferred from my account to his account and then God treated him as if he had actually sinned. But here's the best news. It doesn't end there. That's not the end of imputation. Look at the second half of verse 21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the great reformer uh, Martin Luther called the great exchange uh, where uh, the, the bankrupt sinner receives Christ's righteousness and Christ the righteous one uh, takes on our bankruptcy and is punished on the cross. 
And so there's three aspects to imputation. Uh, Adam died, his sin was imputed to us. And then our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. And then on the cross, his righteousness was transferred to our account. It was as, as if he had sinned, as if he paid the penalty for our sin. Now, to some of us, this sounds too good to be true. In fact, uh, my dad used to say, in fact, I heard my grandpa say, if it sounds too, too good to be true, it probably is. And as a result, many people reject this because it just doesn't feel like it, it is even possible. Like how could somebody, how could a perfect person give up his life for an imperfect person? Why would an innocent man pay the penalty for people who have sinned and continue to sin? We could spend an entire message right here, but in short, the answer is two simple words, grace and love. Somebody reminded this, me this week of the acronym GRACE, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Isn't that good? God's riches at Christ's expense. That means that my sin, it was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to me. It was at Christ's expense that I get to experience uh, the gift of God, which is eternal life. The other part of that answer, why would someone do this, is love. Most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. What did he do? He sent Jesus to be our substitute on the cross. Church, I hope we never, ever, ever tire of hearing about reconciliation. And this morning, I think the gospel is asking you, have you been reconciled to God? We're gonna get a little later in the message. We'll walk through that a little more closely. Well, that brings us to now the beginning of the passage. And so going backwards, uh, what we're gonna see is the messengers of reconciliation. The messengers of reconciliation. We started out with the message and now we as the messengers, uh, what is our role as messengers? I watched a documentary recently about army recruits as they go through basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And, and you just feel sorry for these poor kids as they literally step off the bus, as they step down off that step and they touch the ground, their life immediately changes. Uh, their haircut immediately changes. Uh, the way that they engage with each other and with their superiors immediately changes. The, the exercise regiments that they are part of immediately changes. The food that they eat immediately changes. Pastor David, uh, campus pastor at, at our Lebanon campus, uh, actually was an army recruit that went through Fort Benning, Georgia. And he says, not only did everything uh, externally change about me. My, he says, you wouldn't even recognize the pictures, but internally everything changed as well. I had new motivations. The way that I approached life, the way that I saw things completely changed. That is a perfect description of what happens when we become the righteousness of God. And so for the rest of the morning, we're going to start back in verse 11 and focus on the attributes of those who have been made righteous in Christ. Now, I don't think Paul actually said, here's a list of five things, but as we read through the text, we can draw out these at least five things this morning that represent the messengers or um, uh, a part of our lives as we represent the ministry of reconciliation. And so the first thing I want you to see in verse 11 is a messenger actively persuades others. It's number one, a messenger actively persuades others. First part of verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, what do we do when we see that word therefore? We ask what's it there for? And we know that it's connecting us back to a previous thought. So let's go back one verse earlier 
uh, and see how these are connected. One verse earlier says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we must persuade others, verse 11. Knowing that we're going to stand before the Lord one day, I then uh, actively want to persuade others uh, of what it means to be reconciled to God. This fear of the Lord in verse 11 is not that we're scared to stand in front of the Lord. For some reason, Christians are kind of scared of the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment. That's reserved for unbelievers. When the Lamb's book of life will be opened, those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. That's not for those who have been reconciled to Christ uh, the judgment that, that uh, Christ's followers will stand in is the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema seat was, that language was taken from uh, the precursor to the Olympic Games where they'd actually step up onto a Bema seat and resort, receive their rewards, receive their recognition. And so that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, Paul is saying that th- there's this healthy reverential fear that comes from knowing that only God is my judge. And because of this, I trust in the promise of heaven for those who have been made righteous in Christ, and I no longer fear the words of men. That's what Paul is actually referring to in verse uh, 13, uh, that uh, he was actually being called crazy for Christ. Literally, he was being called a fanatic in the original language. We've talked about D.L. Moody before. He was the famous pastor from uh, the 1800s in Chicago. And he was often called Crazy Moody because he had given up this successful business career to become a Sunday school teacher and and an evangelist. And he didn't care uh, what people thought of him. He didn't care what people called him because his fear of the Lord motivated him to persuade others so that one day when he stood before the Lord, he could receive the soul winner's crown. And so this morning, turn to your neighbor right now and say, be crazy for Jesus. And so a messenger actively persuades others. We're crazy for Jesus. If we're called crazy, it's because we love Jesus and want the world to know about him. The second thing is a messenger is controlled by Christ's love. Look at verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. These verses perfectly describe the substitutionary act of Christ taking our place on the cross. And the love of Christ that compelled him Uh, To accept my penalty for sin, his love compels me or controls me. Your translation may say, I am constrained by his love. That doesn't mean that I'm boxed into where I can't move. It doesn't mean that my hands are restrained behind my back. It it literally means this this pressure that causes action. The, the, The word picture here is that I'm being squeezed so that when I shoot out of the master's hands, I shoot forward in the direction that he's pointing me. And so I'm hemmed in in such a way that I can't veer to the left. I can't veer to the right. I can't go backwards either. I can only move forward. This is exactly what Paul has been talking about, living the spirit-yielded life. His love protects us. It corrects us. It pushes us forward. It's not the law of God, the list of do's and don'ts. It's the love of God that compels us. Amen? Third thing, a messenger sees beyond the surface. 
Messenger sees beyond the surface. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Since Paul's conversion, his priority was to meet people's spiritual needs. You can almost hear him saying, listen, we no longer look at people the way we used to. In fact, here he references how he used to regard Christ. He was alive during the ministry of Jesus and evidently had regarded him as nothing but a poor carpenter. Here's Paul. He had been trained at the feet of the greatest teachers of the day. Undoubtedly, his education was not cheap. And here's Jesus. He was probably homeschooled. He was probably from a blue-collar family, living on the poor side of town, on the other side of the railroad track, so to speak. In fact, that's what the rest of the world thought about Jesus. They, they would look at Jesus and say, You're, you, you mean he's our savior? The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, had prophesied this when in Isaiah 53, he said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his des- uh, appearance that we should desire him. He was a homely fella. He had nothing, uh, no visible uh, skill set. There was nothing in his appearance that would make us want to follow Jesus. And so what did we do? We rejected him and we murdered him according to the flesh. But Paul now says, after my encounter with the risen Lord, says he's my Lord and Savior. He's son of the Son of God. And so the question from the text this morning is, how do you see people? How do you see people? Do you assign judgment to others based on outward appearance? Pastor Michael was telling a story recently, Pastor Michael, uh, from our Middletown Mission campus, and um, I asked his permission to share this. He encounters a, a lot of people in a lot of different situations in life, and uh, away from his campus at a, another setting, he encountered somebody uh, that was uh, homeless, their life was in shambles, and they were clearly a drug addict. Michael will tell you that drug addicts will often be very open uh, about the drugs that they use, and so one of the ways that he uh, engages with them is he'll ask them the question, what's your drug of choice? And this man responded, all of them. That was his response. And so throughout the conversation, as he was getting to know this man, Michael invited him to one of their services. But when this guy found out where the church was located, uh, he says, where is it at? Michael's like, it's, it's in the skillet. That's a part of Middletown. It's, it's, it's where our churches, our campus is located. It's a bad place. Uh, not a lot of good things are happening there. And when this, this homeless guy, whose life was in shambles, heard that the campus was in the skillet, he's like, no way. I'm not going there. I'm not hanging out with those people. Not happening. You see, I think all of us, I think it's natural for us to judge others by their outward appearance. In fact, I would contend sometimes that we overreact and that the pendulum swings uh, all the way in the other direction, that we're really passionate about going with Michael and serving in these high-needs areas. All the while, the people in our own neighborhoods and communities, those with PhDs and master's degrees and doctors and uh, teachers and educators, living in nice houses, driving nice cars, projecting the perfect image. All the while, we wave at them on the way to church, never inviting them to come with us, never inviting them into our home for dinner. And what Paul is saying, listen, now that we're in Christ, we have to start seeing people differently. We have to start seeing them uh, from a spiritual aspect. Are they in Christ or are they perishing? It's nothing else matters in this situation. Are they in Christ or are they perishing? It brings us to the fourth attribute of a messenger. 
The fourth quality is a messenger immediately begins to look like Jesus. Verse 17 is literally one of the most promise-filled statements in this entire letter. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, if you think being in Christ is simply no longer doing the things that you used to do, then you're missing the point. Paul is talking about this radical transformation, this radical new creation that springs out from inside of us. He's not just talking about uh, getting rid of old bad habits. You have new desires, you have new ambitions because you serve a brand new king. Your old self is not just buffed and polished, it it is made new from the inside out. Yes, evil and sin are still present in our sin nature until we get to heaven, we'll still carry that around, but we now see evil and sin differently because they no longer control us. We are a new creation. If you were to explore the grammar and the original language behind that phrase, new has come, we would see that this newness is this uh, ongoing condition. It's a continuing condition. It, it is an uh, ongoing reality, a constant reality. And so every single day, regardless of our age, we have never arrived until we step into the, uh, onto the shores of heaven. We have not yet arrived. And so every day our testimony should be that he looks more like Jesus today than he did yesterday. And it's good to wrestle through in your own life that maybe you're not seeing this continuing newness. And that means probably one of two things. Either A, you're not allowing the spirit control of your life or B, you've not yet been made righteous in Christ. And so that's something that we have to wrestle with. Is my life constantly being made new? That's the fourth attribute. And then perhaps my favorite one, a messenger represents Christ in a foreign land. Messenger represents Christ in a foreign land. Look at verse 20. Therefore, Therefore, we have to go back to the previous verse. He's entrusted us with the gospel. So because he's entrusted us with the gospel, therefore, we're now ambassadors for Christ. I don't know why he entrusted me with the gospel. I look around and some of you, and I don't know why he entrusted some of you to the gospel, okay? I don't know know why he did, but he did. And because he's entrusted you with the gospel, it says we are now ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore to you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's been said that being asked to uh, be an ambassador for the United States of America is one of the greatest honors that can be bestowed upon an American citizen. To, to, to go into a foreign land and to represent the president and his message of freedom is an incredible assignment. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, this world's not my home, that I am a citizen of heaven. Therefore, if that's true, then I am an alien living in a foreign land. And since I am an alien living in a foreign land, I have this opportunity as somebody that has been made righteous to Christ, or the righteousness of God, rather, in verse 21. To those of us that have been made righteous, we have an even better assignment and that assignment should be the greatest single, uh, the single largest role in your life. It carries awesome responsibilities. We get to be Christ's ambassadors. He has chosen you to represent him in a lost and dying world. And so once again, turn to your neighbor beside you and tell them, he has chosen you. Come on, do it. He has chosen you. 
And it's time for all of us to step up and accept this assignment. I found a cool program on the computer this week. Um, it's a program where if you draw a circle on the map, it tells you the population uh, of people that live within that circle. And so I drew a circle around um, all of our campuses and the communities uh, that serve all of our campuses. And so our Sunday morning campuses of Lebanon, Mason, and uh, Liberty Township, it was a 16-mile wide uh, circle. And within that circle on the map, it represents 270,000 people. 270,000 people in a 16-mile wide circle. Can you imagine the impact that we could have over the next five years in our communities if we could just represent King Jesus to 10% of those people? 27,000 people. And do you know how we would do that? It would involve every single adult that calls Liberty Heights home to have just four or five gospel conversations. I'm not talking about saying, hey, uh, God bless you. I'm talking about using the back of our worship folder in this uh, three circles and using the three circles as maybe a way to engage people uh, with the gospel. Just having in the next five years, four to five gospel conversations. If you do the math real quickly, that's only one a year. And in five years, if we would all accept that assignment, uh, we would represent King Jesus to 27,000 people. Imagine if every adult that calls LHC home uh, participated in this process in such a way that two of those people were reconciled to God. That God would use our words through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to persuade others to be reconciled to God. Just two people uh, from every person over the next five years, uh, the attendance at every single one of our campuses would at least double, if not triple, to the glory of God the Father. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do we uh, tell this entire circle of people uh, about Jesus? Just one conversation at a time. We have to accept the assignment to be ambassadors for Christ. In closing this morning, the old Jewish sacrificial system, it was still prevalent when uh, Paul wrote this letter. And the old system required a blood sacrifice and payment for sin. The old covenant, which Paul had spent so much time talking about earlier in this letter, it actually said in the old covenant in Leviticus chapter 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so following that very first sin in the Garden of Eden, God set the punishment for sin as death. And as strange as this sounds, to those of you that have grown up in church and since you were little you've been talking about this, it doesn't sound as weird, uh, but to those of you that maybe weren't raised in church, uh, God actually allowed an animal sacrifice at the temple to serve as a substitute for the blood uh, that the people of Israel owed for their sin. But because there was never a perfect sacrifice, uh, there was never the perfect animal, there was never the, the perfect substitute to stand in our place, the sacrifices had to be made over and over and over. Uh, the, the temple was a gory, bloody, nasty place. Because you could only uh, have a sacrifice for the sins of the past, there was no such thing as the perfect substitute that, that would cover the sins of the future. 
But finally, 2,000 years ago, God asked his son Jesus to step down from the majesty of heaven and to become one of us, to be our righteousness, to become our substitute. This wasn't like the Enrollment Act of 1863 that eventually had to be abandoned because they couldn't find a suitable substitute. Instead, Jesus was the most perfect substitute that you and I and every other person that has ever lived would ever need. In every situation that he was in, every relationship that he encountered, every temptation uh, that, that came upon him, even in every moment of suffering, he was perfect. He never failed one single test. Quickly take you to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Paul's describing uh, Jesus here. This is the great exchange that Martin Luther described. And because Jesus was the perfect substitute on the cross, he made the perfectly acceptable sacrifice. And when Jesus died, he satisfied God's requirement uh, where the penalty of our sin had to be, had to be uh, shed in blood. And that penalty was once and forever lifted because of his substitution, we are redeemed. And the old sacrificial system, praise God, has been made obsolete. And so we don't have to pull through puddles of blood as we come into uh, the temple this morning. I'll take you one back, uh, back one last time to the words of the Apostle Paul here in chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, Christ died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Friends, listen to me this morning. Jesus is inviting you to stop living for yourself and to begin living for Christ. And the gospel this morning is inviting you. Won't you trust him today? Won't you trust him today? Would you bow your heads with me? And if you're as able, as much as you're able, I'm going to ask you today that you would uh, stay quietly in your seat during this time because I think the gospel demands a response today. I want to give you several opportunities to pray, th pray through this passage. Uh, let the power of the Holy Spirit convict you in certain areas. But I want to start with those who have not yet been reconciled to God. The next two verses of chapter 6, I think, actually belong to chapter 5. And Paul ends this entire thought saying, today is the day of salvation. And so this morning, if you've never been reconciled to God, his free gift awaits you. It simply comes by faith of saying, God, I am, I'll never measure up to Jesus. That he is the perfect substitute. And so I'm going to allow him to stand in my place to receive the penalty that I was owed. And through repentance, by faith you believe this morning, then God will make you in Christ, that God will transfer his righteousness from Jesus Christ to you. It sounds almost too good to be true, but it is. For others of you this morning, I just want to spend time praying through these five things. I want to prompt you there in the quietness of your own heart to pray through these, to confess these areas where these, this maybe can't be said about you. And the first is this. Do you actively persuade others? Are you engaged actively in representing King Jesus to those that are perishing?
Would you confess this morning in the, uh, uh, to the opportunities that you've missed? Would you pray this morning for boldness to share the hope of the gospel? Would you pray this morning that you'd be controlled by Christ's love? Paul said later that it was God's kindness that drew us to repentance. And sometimes we try to push other people to repentance and it's not through our kindness. Would you confess this morning those times when you have not been compelled or controlled by his love? Would you ask him, would you tell him that he has free reign to control you? Would you pray for the ability to see beyond the surface this morning? Would you ask for the grace to be able to see in people's lives and simply see are they in Christ or are they perishing? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to see people in a spiritual way? Would you give the Spirit free reign this morning to make you a new person? Remember, it's not just I've been made new once before, that I'm continuously in this act of being made new. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind right now some ways that you've not been acting out of this newness of life? Would you yield back to Him this morning full control of your life where you can live the Spirit-controlled life that results in this newness that Paul speaks of. And finally this morning, would you pray and tell God that you're willing to accept the assignment. Maybe you're like me and you don't know why you've been entrusted with the gospel. It doesn't make any sense. But would you thank him that he has entrusted you to be his ambassador? Would you pray this morning that God would give you the boldness to engage in these gospel conversations? Imagine what we can do as a church if all of us were to have four or five gospel conversations over the next four or five years. In reality, we should probably do that this month or even this week. Our Heavenly Father, this morning I pray for those who have yet to be reconciled with Jesus. God, I pray that you would make them so aware of the emptiness and the brokenness of their lives that they could think to do nothing else than to run to you. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ uh, through the forgiveness of Christ. I thank you for your riches that have come at Christ's expense. God, I pray for those that have yet to embrace the spirit-filled life, that are holding back different areas of their life out of your control. God, I pray this morning that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we'd release that to you so that they could once and forever be controlled by Christ's love. God, help us to understand the awesome responsibility that comes from 
knowing that all of my sins have been forgiven, that I have been made a new creation, and now that responsibility that, that comes with that to persuade others. God, help us to represent you better than we ever have, knowing that we can only do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray all of this in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.